You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. A copy of God's Word. Let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. You can almost quote this with me. Let's see if you can. These things are written that you may believe, anybody, that Jesus is, am I the only one here this morning? I mean, that's not redundant enough, right? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's a good practice to memorize scripture, even if it is force-fed by your pastor, but at any rate, uh, John chapter 17 We began looking last week at our first uh, part of this particular chapter, and as you know, it is really divided into three different parts. This is part two of what could be called the high priestly prayer, and what I believe should be called the high priestly prayer is Jesus as high priest whenever he prays. It's not just important for us to understand what Jesus is praying here, though that's important, It's important for us to understand what's actually happening, that these few moments that Jesus spends with his disciples praying over them to the Father, that these few moments are emblematic or um, they flow out of his eternal role as intercessor, as high priest, where the Bible says that he ever lives and intercedes for us. So last week we talked about intercession and what that means, praying for someone else on their behalf, uh, in their place, when there's a need that only God can meet, and yet this person or group of people has not even enough strength to pray or to know what to pray, you pray in their place for them, pleading their case before God. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here for his disciples. He sees the troubled hearts of these disciples. He sees the fear that they have of being alone, but more than that, he sees the danger that is on their faith as they live out this Christian life in a very troubled world, broken world, and in their weakness, in their lack of strength, in their fear, Jesus pleads their case. But this is actually Jesus does not just for these disciples, for these believers. This is what Jesus does for all believers. There is no longer a need in the gospel for there to be any kind of human mediator. Jesus is the mediator between us and God, and he ushers us directly into his throne room because he pleads our case by his very blood. And he has been and will continue to plead our case throughout all of 
eternity on the basis of his shed blood. So this prayer of Jesus is a picture, a picture of what is happening day and night, continually, not on earth now, but in heaven before the very face of the Father. So the main thing that we saw last week that we're just going to carry through over the next three weeks is this. Jesus is continually pleading your case before God and praying for your deepest needs. He is continually pleading your case before God and praying for your deepest needs. Hebrews 7 says that we have this great high priest who holds the priesthood permanently. And he ever lives and pleads for us, makes intercession for us. So this prayer is a demonstration of the one who is praying, calling for faith in him as our great high priest before it is anything else. Before we ever see the content, we must see what Jesus is doing. And it should fill our hearts with incredible joy. Because more than any other human being praying for us, interceding for us, Jesus is pleading our case. And His plea is perfect. But this prayer is not only important because of who Jesus is, but also because of what He's actually praying for. Here Jesus is in the final moments before His death. And we think about those moments before death as perhaps the most urgent moments on all of our lives. If, if we've got no other time left, what would we say? What would we do? And maybe that's a window into Jesus' heart because he's praying some of the things that are, that are the closest to his heart. And he's not praying for himself. He's praying for us. So what are the things that Jesus prays for? Well, there are five total requests that Jesus makes. We've already seen one of them in John chapter 17 when Jesus prayed, Would you glorify me as I glorify you? That's the first petition in John 17. But there are four more in John 17, all four believers. And all four of those are actually in this second paragraph. One of them is introduced which Jesus will expand on in the final paragraph. We'll look at that next week. So we're going to look at these three main petitions in the Lord's, uh, in the, um, in the, the, well, it's really the Lord's prayer, not the model prayer, John chapter 17. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Again, we will read all of John 17 together. <coughs> The Bible says when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have 
given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to come to know in the truth that I that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I have kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them and not one of them was not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with may be may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them. And I in them. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that even as we look to your words, to the Father, I pray, God, that we would be instructed, that we would be reminded of these truths, these things that you prayed for us and that you are bringing to pass that are promised from the Lord. I pray that they would be true in our lives and that we would come to know them and value them, treasure them for all of their worth. I pray that we would be reminded that you are the one who is pleading our case, that there is no uh, there is no need to continue to plead our case before God because it has already been settled in the blood of the lamb. I praise you for that. I pray that if there's one here whose case has not been settled, whose sins have not been forgiven and who stands against you, I pray that today they would repent and be saved. And that you, our great high priest, would plead their case before God. Lord, I, I pray that you would encourage us and instruct us now from your word. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. 
Jesus is continually pleading your case before God and praying for your deepest needs. The question then is, what is he praying for? What is he pleading for? What is he going between you and God and advocating for on your behalf, on my behalf? Well, here in these final moments of Jesus' life, he the intercessor becomes the substitute for sinners. He is the one that gives his life in the place of sinners. And just before he's going to do the very thing that he came for, what is it that is closest to his heart for believers to pray for? And by the way, that's a piece of information that's really important. That he's praying not for all people here, but he's praying specifically for believers. In fact, it's important enough for Jesus to actually emphasize that as he's praying to the Father. He's already stated who he is, but now he's wanting to be clear about who it is that he's praying for. That's why he says in verse 9, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Jesus here in John 17 is praying specifically for these believers, these disciples, and as he makes clear later, all future disciples. It's not just this general prayer. It's kind of this catch-all thing. These are some really important things for his people. And that's an important distinction. And why is it important that Jesus make this distinction here between praying for the lost and praying for the saved. Why is this such an important distinction in what Jesus is praying for? Well, number one, Jesus' prayer reinforces what a believer actually is. Jesus' prayer reinforces what a believer actually is. See, Jesus makes very clear not only that he is praying for believers, he says that, we just read it, but he makes very clear who those believers are. How to know what this, this thing called a believer, this thing called a disciple, really is. So he begins in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. That's the people Jesus is describing. Sinners called out of the world, given to Jesus by God. These are the people Jesus is praying for. He says, yours they were and you gave them to me. So they belong to God. This ownership of their life, this authority over this life, this lordship. It says that they kept your word. So there's obedience from these believers. They obey the word of God. There's fruit from the lives of these who are called believers. Verse seven. Now they know that everything you've given uh, given me is from you. So so they not only have kept the word, but they believe the word about Jesus. They believe the truth about Jesus, that it is true what the Bible says about him and what he preaches Verse 8, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe upon Jesus? Verse 8, 4, so this is the explanation. I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them, have come to know the truth, and they believe that you have sent me. 
So they hear the word about Jesus, they receive them, they come to know it, and they come to receive it as their own. Jesus says, those are the ones I'm praying for. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. Not praying for the world, so he, he sets them apart. There's a group of people called the world who are against God, hostile against the things of God, who have not believed the gospel. They are different than those who Jesus just described. And then he concludes, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. You might call this a basic definition of a disciple. And this is super important, especially in our day. Because the term Christian has become so watered down in our American culture that it almost has no meaning at all. In the New Testament, the word Christian was not something taken up by a disciple. It was actually something given to the disciple. Because there was something so recognizably different in their lives. They were ones who had left everything to follow Jesus. They were these crazy people who, who decided that Jesus was worth losing everything. The ones that, that would give their lives for Jesus. Those were the ones who became known as Christians. Not people who held particular political values. They were not people who carried a particular social label. There were no Christian t-shirts, no Christian bumper stickers, no memes to share on social media. These were people who gained the word Christians because, listen, very succinctly, they actually followed Jesus. They were disciples. And so, in, in short, Jesus was life. It was so obviously true that people called them Christians. So take all that together, maybe in one package. A believer is a person who was once a sinner, who's now been saved. Saved by God, given by God to Jesus. Turning away from sin to follow Jesus. Putting total faith and trust in who the Bible declares Jesus to be. Receiving and trusting His work on the cross. And living a life of obedience to His Word. That's the definition of a believer biblically. And this is important. Because this is who Jesus is praying for. He says, I'm not praying for the rest. I'm praying specifically for these. So Jesus' prayer reinforces what a believer actually is. But then, secondly, Jesus' prayer fences in what a believer actually receives. So, all of these things out here, Jesus puts up a fence and says, these are the things that I want believers to have. Everything else doesn't matter so much. These things in here, I'm going to guard and protect them. I'm not only going to want them, I'm actually going to ensure that they happen. This is what Jesus prays for. And again, as much confusion as there is today over what a believer actually is, there is equally as much confusion over what a believer receives from God. For various reasons and with various Agendas, there are those who are believing and those who are teaching, 
that God gives all kinds of things, promises all kinds of things. Among them, health, wealth, prosperity, even taking some of the promises of God's word that are not explicitly applied to all believers and making those applicable and then distorting the truth so that it looks like inside the fence is green grass and calm meadows. But that's not always the case. In fact, Jesus here in verse 9, you don't, you don't even have to go outside the prayer. Here in verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. Yours are mine and I am glorified. So Jesus is praying for those inside the fence. He's praying for a certain set of things. Not only that, he prays in a way that's consistent with what he does promise believers. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Well, you remember last chapter, he talked about the persecution that was coming. So he's not praying, God, take it away. There are some things that that he's already been clear about. Persecution, tribulation, being hated. Not healthy necessarily, not wealthy, not necessarily economically or otherwise prosperous. And remember, he's praying for disciples who are not leaping for joy, but are quivering in fear. They're scared to death because of being alone. They need somebody. Listen, these disciples need somebody pleading their case because apart from that, they are a broken mess. And Jesus prays for some very specific things to help them. So what are they? Well, there again are five petitions or requests. That's what a petition is. It's a request, particularly in prayer. The first one, we've already seen it. God would glorify Jesus. Jesus would glorify the Father. All of that's wrapped up in verses 1 through 5. First part of it saying glory to Jesus. The second part, glory to the Father. Sandwiched in the middle is all that Jesus is to bring glory to the Father. The four other petitions are here in this middle paragraph. Verses 11, the second half of it particularly, through verse 19. One of them is briefly alluded to. Again, we'll give more... (coughs) Excuse me. We'll give more credence to this next week because Jesus goes on and on about it. It's a pretty big deal. And that's being one... As the Father and the Son are one. We're to be one. We'll come back to that next week. Here in the middle of verse 11, the very first petition for us is mentioned. Read it with me. Holy Father, keep them in your name. You've given me that they may be one even as we are one. So what is the petition? Keep us in His name. In the midst of your feeling alone, in the midst of your not knowing ultimate clear direction in your life, in the midst of fear, in the midst of anxiety and worry, in the midst of trouble and being hated, in the midst of even giving your life, Jesus' prayer is, God, just, just keep them in Your name. Just keep them in Your name. If you were to put two words on this petition, doctrinally, 
would be the words eternal security. There is a certain sense in which Jesus says, if you don't don't keep them, God, if you don't act to keep these people in your name, they're just going to run off the the deep end. They're just going to fly off the hinges. They're never going to make it. God, will you keep them? Will you keep them in your name? In other words, don't let them go. There's a very real danger of them turning back. Don't let that happen, God. Don't let them stray. Don't let them turn back as sheep and wander and ultimately perish. See, Jesus knows there's dangers everywhere to our faith. And we, just in our own nature, are are so prone to making shipwreck of our faith and And Jesus says, no, would you keep them in your name? Don't let that happen, Holy Father. And keep them specifically. He doesn't just say keep them in the faith. He says keep them in your name. In other words, don't let them turn to some other name. There's going to be a temptation in the lives of these disciples and in our own lives for us to turn and trust another name. For us to listen to another voice. For us to believe another truth. And Jesus says, no, keep them in your name. Not the name of other gods. Or more subtly than that, not the name of other things that we turn into gods. Not the name of riches. Not the name of self. Not the name of prosperity. Not the name of any of these other things. You keep them in your name, God. And what is that name? It's the name given, which is the same name given to Christ. The I am God, the one who has claimed the name Yahweh for himself. He is eternal God. The same name given to Jesus. The one name among, given among men by which we might be saved. The same name. Thank you, brother. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says that we shall worship the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What are we hearing even before that? This call to believe that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is that one name. And that impacts our worship. It's a worship issue. Jesus is praying, keep them from idolatry. Keep them from diverting their affections from the only name that is worthy of worship to some other lesser name. He's praying, keep us from idolatry. Romans 1, this is the nature of man. To exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It is to exchange the truth about God for a lie and to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. This is what God saved us out of. He saved us out of trusting in other names. And it is so dangerous and even deadly for us to begin to to stray in our worship. And Jesus says, oh no, God, would you keep them? And I need Jesus interceding for me. I need Jesus 
petitioning the Father on my behalf to keep me from diverting my affections to lesser things because the temptations are everywhere. And I'm not just talking about things that would be that we might label morally corrupt, but even to give our things to lesser things than God Himself, to the creation rather than Him. And to, to not give our time to the Lord. It's so easy as Christians, is it not, to just let our time in the Word and our time in prayer and Bible study just, just wane. I remember sharing with our students last, last week how difficult it is when you walk away from the mountaintop to continue to pour your life into the Scriptures. And, and that's going to get even more difficult this week. And how many things do we have to give our time to? Right? How much is warring for our time and our attention? And just in that one area of our life, we are so prone toward idolatry. Jesus is saying, Oh God, let it not be so. And because of Jesus interceding for me, I can trust as I continue to, continue to follow Him that, that my worship, my affections are going to be set on the name of God. He's doing that on my behalf. Jesus is zealous for that. He's so zealous that in verse 12 He says, I was with them and I kept Your name. I guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except for Judas. But that was, on, that was a part of the plan of God, right? This is, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But He says, now I'm coming to you. I'm not going to be there anymore physically, Jesus. Or physically, God, so will you keep them? It's more than a request. It's something that God grants. Remember, Jesus already said in John 10 that when God gives him the sheep, that none are snatched from his hand. Jesus is going before God, pleading our case that we would not fall away, that we would be kept and guarded in his name, and it actually happens. Such good news. So that's what Jesus is praying for. It's the closest thing to his heart. What else is inside the fence that Jesus is praying for? Number two, He prays that the Father would keep us from the evil one. <coughs> that the Father would keep us from the evil one. He says, I've given them Your Word, and the world, the world different word there, world has hated them because... They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We don't have the petition yet. Verse 15, I do not ask them that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. There's the petition. God, keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And Jesus makes it plain, first of all, that believers... Disciples, those who've been, those who've received and embraced the truth of the Lord, His Word, the Gospel, are going to be hated by the world. So understand that. He's already declared that in chapter 16, but it is true. He assumes it here again. It won't be the popular vote. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's not going to be the popular vote. By the way, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should not make it your aim to please the masses. It should not be the goal of your life. Popular vote, 
doesn't matter in Christianity. As believers, we submit to one and only one authority. And it's the word of the living God. And as we submit to God, that is the litmus test for every decision we make in our life. If it doesn't please God, it doesn't matter how many people agree with it. It's still not right. We trust and follow Him. But if we're going to define our lives that way, we will be hated. But Jesus also makes it plain, not only that you'll be hated, but that He's not asking for that to go away. Which is really, really interesting. Don't buy the bill of goods that says that Jesus only wants you to be happy. It is false. It's not the ultimate goal in the Christian life. We'll see that here, in, here again in a moment. But verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Well, wouldn't that, been, wouldn't that have been nice? Jesus, just take us away from it. Take it all away, right? Just rapture us out of the world. Take us to heaven. Everything is all well and good. Jesus is not interested in taking us out of the world. Instead, he asked that since we are not of the world, and since we have, still, have to still be in the world, that God would keep us from the evil one. That's the request. There is an enemy, the evil one, who he's already told us that he seeks to kill and to steal and to destroy. That was in John 10 as well. And Jesus says, Father, would you keep them from that old devil? Would you keep them out of the crosshairs? In the world, but kept from the evil one. This, by the way, is where we as Christians in our circles have gotten the phrase, in the world, but not of the world. Because we live in a world where there's dangers around every corner of the enemy lurking, seeking to kill and to steal and to destroy us. Satan would like nothing more than to bring believers down. To nullify the Gospel. To declare Jesus less than Himself. And he thinks he can do that. By derailing believers. By destroying Believers, And this is what He sets out to do. But Jesus has prayed for us. <laughs> Just like Jesus said to Peter, Satan desired to, slift, to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that even when you do fail, that you'll turn back. And when you turn back, that you'll bring many to My name. This is the prayer of Jesus for every believer. We are in a spiritual battle, church, every day of our lives. Ephesians 6 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, although in Baptist life sometimes it may seem that way. <laughs> we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have an enemy, and that enemy desires to destroy us that's a spiritual battle for your heart and for your mind. And the enemy would do anything he could do to entice you. Even for but one fleeting moment. And if I were trusting in my own strength to avoid that, if I were just trying to figure out how to, how to flee temptation or how to fight temptation, I would fail fighting and fleeing temptation every 
single time. But Jesus is pleading for me. He's praying for me. In fact, this is one of the things that Jesus us to pray for in what has been called the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. You could quote this with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Not great riches, right? (laughs) And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And the final petition and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Aren't you thankful this morning that no matter how tricksy the devil is, that our God is greater? Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. I love what First Corinthians, what Paul wrote, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It is our God that is protecting us from the evil one. And Jesus is praying for that to be so. So that's the second thing inside the fence. There's one more here before we move to next week. And that's in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. So, petition number three. Sanctify us in the truth. (coughs) Sanctify us in the truth. Here's what verses 17 through 19 says. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So the request is there in verse 17. Sanctify. Hagiazo. It is the idea of setting apart or making holy. Hagias is the word holy. It's the root word. It's saying, would you make my people Holy. But look at the giant concrete slab that's underneath the request. If we just stop there, we'll miss it. He says, Father, you've sent me into the world. Jesus has been sent into the world. Who is Jesus? He is the Word become flesh. That's what John 1 says. We've seen this. He is eternal God taking on flesh, becoming a man in order to die for the sins of the world without ever losing his, divin- his divinity. He dies, is raised to life, and returns to the, so- to the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is fully God. And as such, He is fully holy. He is the holiest one. He is morally upright and spotless. His heart is not full of sin. He is not set in rebellion. He does not hate God. He is not evil and wicked. That's the ones He came to die for. So Jesus, the holiest one, comes. You've sent me into the world. And He comes to the most unholy of places and of people. He comes to the darkest of places, the most wicked of places, the most evil of places. Do you see the juxtaposition here? 
the holiest of all holies, comes to dwell among sinners. This is the gospel. And it's for their sake, for our sake, that He comes. You've sent me into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Jesus says, I am, I'm on a mission. I, I'm going to die for them. And he says, I consecrate myself, which is the same word, hagiatso. For the unholy, the holiest comes and hallows himself for the sake of making us holy. He sets us apart, away from the world, as morally pure. And it's on that concrete slab that Jesus says in the same way, now they're sent into the world. But they're not holy immediately. They are becoming holy. Sanctify them. Do this over time. Gradual. Keep them from the evil one and do so by leading them in your word amidst a sinful world. This is so helpful to understand about what God is doing in the Christian life. Why are we saved and then left in a world full of sin that hates us? So that the Word of God might dwell in our lives and we, amidst a sinful world, might be made over time to look more and more like Jesus. That's why. The goal of the Christian life is therefore not happiness, it is holiness. What is God doing in your marriage? Days that seem so broken and so hopeless, like there's no answers and like this is never going to work. He's sanctifying you. He's bringing His Word to life in your heart and mind and your life as you follow Him even in some of the hardest moments of your life. He's sanctifying you. What is God doing in your lives, students, as you go back to school tomorrow or this week? Why has He sent you out into a world where it's so dangerous to be a Christian and you've got to deal with bullies and people that don't believe the same thing that you believe and curriculum that tries to teach you things other than the truth? Why? Because you're being trained in righteousness. Every day of your life being made holy like Jesus. Believer, why are you in a job that you hate? Why don't you just get out of it and go find something that makes you happy? Maybe. God is doing something in this job because He's taking His Word and He's putting feet and hands on it and He's teaching you how to be like Jesus. See, the goal of the Christian life is sanctification. It is holiness, not happiness. And watch this. It happens successfully. You're going to live your whole life and go, I don't know if it's ever going to happen in me. I don't ever know if this is going to be corrected. I, I don't know if I'm ever going to look like Jesus the way I'm supposed to. No, the Word says that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The Bible says that He is able to present you before the throne faultless. 
because He's sanctifying you. Jesus is praying that it would be so, and God is bringing it to pass. Oh, how important this prayer of Jesus is for the believer. I want you to bow your heads with me all across the room. No one looking around, just you and God. No one moving. Jesus, right now in this moment, understand this, right on this moment, Jesus is interceding for you. If you're a believer in this room, that means that your life, your marriage, your job, your children, your school, all of that is before the Father right now as Jesus is asking the Father to make you holy. He's asking the Father, would you keep them in your name? He's asking the Father, would you keep him from or her from the evil one? God is doing that right now. Jesus is doing that right now for you. And it seems like every time you go to the Word, there's more conviction, there's more to correct, and it seems like it's a losing battle. But the goal, the goal is to make you more like Jesus and Jesus is pleading for that. And so when temptation comes, God is protecting you. When you're tempted to set your affection on other things, lesser things, He comes back and says, turn your heart and your mind to Me. So for some of you this morning, you're a believer and God is doing that right now in you. He says, turn to me. Trust in me. Rest in me. Worship me. Strive for righteousness, knowing that Jesus is pleading your case. Just trust. Some of you are here in this room and Jesus is praying for you because you've not yet believed, but you're going to. (laughs) Is that you today? You hear the voice of the shepherd, the voice of Jesus calling you. You are the person who, as you look at your life, you are a sinner, not once were a sinner. (laughs) You, You know Jesus died, but you haven't trusted that. You've not received His Word as the truth. But today you're willing. In just a few moments, would you respond to the voice of the shepherd? Because Jesus is calling you to come and follow Him today and to be saved from your sin, to receive forgiveness, and to be set free forever. Just come. Trust Him. Follow Him with your life. So here's what I want to ask you to do. All across the room, I want to ask you to stand with me. And everybody quietly, just stand with me in this room. The altar is open. I'm going to pray. And the Lord's dealing with your heart. And I want to just ask you to respond in obedience to Jesus. Father, move in this place. God, we give you our lives. We surrender everything to you right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This altar is open. You come this morning. You need to spend time with God in prayer. Need somebody to pray with you? You come. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com.
www.thebibleinstitute.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.